Now let's continue our time of worship because when we come to the Word of God, we continue in worship. We worship when we pray, we worship when we sing, and we worship when we open our hearts and respond to the Word of God. So I encourage you to do that. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the first book of the New Testament. That is the book of Matthew. Matthew. And if you would, turn to the last chapter of the first book of the New Testament. That's chapter 28. Chapter 28. So we begin today, Matthew chapter 28. How many of you, I have a question, how many of you have ever had this experience, you found yourself in a situation when you know that you're really trying to do something right, you're trying to do something good, but you find out very quickly that you're way in over your head. <laughs> Anyone ever been there? I mean, it's, it's not a bad thing you're trying to do. You're trying to do a good thing. But you find out your good is not good enough. And you're just in over your head. I'm in over my head. Now, I've certainly experienced that on many occasions. I do want to tell you, though, the most recent experience of it has to do with announcement made earlier, insert that was in your bulletin, and announcement about uh, this book that will be available soon, this devotional book that I've written uh, called Sunlight. Now, about a year or so ago, I had a, I had a bright idea. And I thought about it. I said, you know, this would be helpful. What if the entire church family, or as many as could, would just commit to reading through the New Testament in a year? What if someone wrote a devotional for them for every one of those days? And that's 260 days right there. 260 chapters of the New Testament, 5 times 52, 52 weeks, 260. Well, you can't let them backslide on the weekend, so how about... Proverbs for Saturday morning and Sunday Psalms. And that way you could read through the entire New Testament in a year, Psalms and Proverbs in a year, and have a devotional go along with it. And I was thinking somebody ought to do that. And so I had the idea, I'm going to do that. And so I began. And it wasn't long till. My I'm going to do that had somehow turned into I can't do this. <laughs> what was I thinking? Uh, because it was a good thing and many of you are coming. There's been 400 people or so that have been on this journey this year and are coming and saying, oh, Pastor Sam, this is, this is so good. Thank you. Thank you. This has been so helpful. And I'm I'm seeing you here in church with a nice little clenched jaw smile. Well, praise God. <laughs> because, you know, I hadn't thought some things through. You ever get into something you hadn't thought something through? You know, there's 365 days in a year. 
And I found out every one of these devotional was taking me an hour to two hours each to write. Because all of you know, I'm a talker. I am not a writer. <laughs> and so I fairly shortly thought, I can't do this. And then uh, the publisher, my dear friend Lisa, tells me, you know, we have to have this. Do you want to have this in book form? And remember, the reason I'm doing a good thing because some people give some donations and the donations goes to Cedarbrook, our outreach. And you've been doing that. And we've raised a few thousand dollars this year. And I'm sorry to make money off your devotions, but we've done that. But now we've put in the book, but Lisa says, you have to have this done by September 1st. And uh, that means... August 27th for me, because on August 27th, Susan and I left for a trip to Romania. And now I'm really beginning to think, I cannot do this. I can't do this. It was really pretty bad. <laughs> but I prayed, Lord, I believe this is of you. I want to do my best. I prayed. And so all I knew to do was pray and pick up my Bible and pick up my pen and write and ask the Lord to help and somehow work this whole other project of uh, four or five hundred hours into these first eight months of the year. And I want to tell you, the Lord gave grace and on August 27th, somewhere over the Atlantic, <laughs> I finished December 28th, 29th, 30th, and 31st. Now, when you get to those and you read those, they may come across as a little bit of thin air, okay? <laughs> Some, you, you know, something was going on there. And I hope... But, you know, I found out that if you do what you can, God's grace is an enabling grace. It's an enabling grace. God's grace enables us. You know what pride says? Pride says this. I am able. I am able. That's what pride says. Grace says he is able. And what is it that faith says? Faith says his grace will enable me. That's what faith says. Pride says, I, I, I'm able. Grace says, he is able, and he is. But faith says, he will enable me. And so this morning, what I want us to focus on is we're talking about simply amazing, God's all-sufficient grace. I want us to know that it's all-sufficient enabling grace. Four times when you're in over your head. When you want to do good, but your good's not good enough. When you want to do right, but it's, you don't have the ability to do that. When you're trying to be wise, but your wisdom's not enough. That's when God's grace is grace. Enabling grace. And so this morning, I want to share with you three promises of enabling grace, three promises of enabling grace. We're going to see this in two mountaintop experiences, two mountaintop experiences which give us three great promises of enabling grace 
for one supreme purpose. Okay, three promises of enabling grace from the Lord Jesus he makes to you. He uttered these on two mountaintop moments and he shares them for one supreme purpose. Now we're here in Matthew chapter 28. So many of you are familiar with this, but let's read these verses again. Matthew 28, beginning verse 16. And let's ask the Lord to help us to enjoy them just like for the very first time, sort of like cornflakes this morning, okay? Just taste them again for the very first time. Verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. There's the mountaintop. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now notice, they, his disciples did not have all perfect faith, even yet. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now here is this mountaintop experience, Jesus with his disciples in Galilee, and he shares with them, first of all, this wonderful promise. Here's a promise of his enabling grace. It's the promise of his absolute authority. Did you notice this? It's a promise of our Lord's absolute authority. He can promise us enabling grace because he has absolute authority. Look at verse 18. And Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now the word here, authority, is very interesting, powerful word. It's used throughout the New Testament. The word is exousia, exousia. And it means the right to act or the right to carry something out. The inherent right to do so. That's what this word authority means. And Jesus says, I have authority. But notice, he qualifies that. What kind of authority is it that Jesus has? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. Did you ever attend a class or maybe hear a message or a series of messages and you don't remember much, if anything, about it except one thing you got. And you took it with you. Many years ago, when I was in youth ministry up in Ohio, Pastor Snavely, who's a pastor that I served with, he invited someone to do a three-day conference at our church, a Bible conference. I was not familiar with this individual. Quite frankly, I determined that he was one of the four or five boringest speakers I'd ever heard in my entire life. And uh, my job was to have the teenagers there for the conference and tell them, you will like this. <laughs> and 
Honestly, the Lord gave me something, though, in that conference. And I have never forgotten it, even though it's 35 years or more. But here's what he said, and I've never forgotten it, the speaker. He simply said this about the word all. All means all, and that's all that all means. Now, isn't that brilliant? That just opened up the whole Bible for you, didn't it? I think. That's the key to knowledge right there. All means all, and that's all that all means. But when you begin to read scriptures and about the Lord Jesus Christ and talks about all, this really does open up a lot to you. Jesus said, I have all authority. All means all, and that's all that all means. He said, I have all authority in heaven. And it's easy maybe for us to believe that. But notice what he says. I have all authority on earth. All authority in heaven and on earth. I have all authority. It's been given to me. Now, just for a minute, minute, consider the world condition when Jesus said that. What was the world condition when Jesus, standing on that mountaintop in Galilee, made that statement? There was a monster who was the ruler of the known world at that time, named Tiberius. He was Caesar. He was a monster. There was a madman who is the ruler of Galilee, where Jesus was when he made that statement. His name was Herod Antipas. And there was a murderer who was ruling down in Jerusalem. His name is Pontius Pilate. And Jesus Christ, with a monster on the throne of the world, a madman on the throne of that region and a murderer on the throne in Jerusalem said, all authority in heaven and earth is mine. Now, what do we take away from that? Friends, here's what we take away from it. Regardless of the monsters in the world, the madmen in the world, the murderers in the world, who may have power, Their corrupt agendas cannot in the slightest subtract from Jesus Christ's complete authority. No one's corrupt agenda can in the slightest subtract from Jesus' complete authority. He is Lord over all. He is in charge. He has complete authority. And in His sovereign authority... He allows for a period of time the foolishness and wickedness of sinful people to rebel against His rule. But He has the rule. There is a throne over heaven and earth. And friends, that throne has someone on it and His name is Jesus Christ. Never forget this. Why is this so important? Why did Jesus begin there? 
All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Why did he begin there? Because his authority is our authorization. His authority is our authorization, not our authority. It's not the authority of our ability, our authority of our wisdom. It's not the authority of our money or power. That is not our authority. He has all authority, and his authority grants to us authorization to do what? Look what he said next. Now go. Be going. All authority is mine, and you're under my authority, and I authorize you to be going into all the world, wherever you go. Be witnessing of me. Have people becoming disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Be teaching people everything I've shared with you. You are doing this under my authority with my authorization. Friend, if you are a Christian and you're waiting around for a call of God to authorize you to serve Him, I want to tell you, your phone is ringing. If you are a Christian, you are authorized to represent the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's grace. Now, how wonderful that is. The Lord gives us the commission to go. Here's the commission. We sometimes call this the Great Commission. Why do we call it the Great Commission? He, he challenges us to go, but this is what's so wonderful. As he tells us to go, he does not say, go alone. We don't go alone because here's the second promise I want to give you. The second mountaintop promise of God's grace it is the promise of our Lord's abiding presence. Our Lord's abiding presence. What is it that Jesus said? He says, behold, I am with you always. Verse number 20. I am with you always to the end of the age. Many of you know that have been here for some time. And I share some stories about my growing up in Indiana. I grew up in a factory community. There was a railroad track that went right through our town. I lived just a few blocks away from that smoky uh, factory. My dad worked there for over 30 years, and it was a tough neighborhood. I mean, it really was. It was a tough neighborhood. It was the wrong side of the tracks. And that's the reason it took me a long time to convince Susan's dad that someone halfway decent could come out of that side of the tracks, okay? And any of you that have ever dated the first daughter, okay, you know what I'm talking about, okay? You get put under the microscope like nobody's business. I was amazed by that because the time Susan's little sister came along, the third one, and she's got somebody wanting to date her, and I'm thinking, are you kidding me? I mean, well, I digress, okay? <laughs> Get that out there. I was from the wrong side of the track. It was a tough neighborhood. And we grew up on those streets and... Yes, we had a lot of fun. We 
enjoyed ourselves. But guess what? Very early on, we learned in our neighborhood, you always had your head on a swivel. You just need to be aware of your surroundings because you had learned that there were some mean people that lived in that community and there were some really mean dogs, all right? And you, you kept your head on a swivel. But it was amazing, as I would sometimes be walking with my older brother, Lonnie. He was three years older than me. And when I was walking with him, it was amazing the transformation that took place in my walk. I mean, we would be walking places that typically I'd be kind of looking like this, looking like this. But I'm walking with Lonnie strolling down the street, and it's like I'm doing this. I'm walking here. I'm walking here. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm confident. Why? Because my big brother's with me. I'm not alone. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying he's always with us. His abiding presence is there. This past week, someone reached out to me. This person, I won't say he or she, I'll just say they or them. So excuse my subject verb disagreement here for a moment. Said, uh, this person said they had to fly long distance. And they were consider, concerned because flying didn't suit very well with them. And would I be praying for them? And I responded, I, I'll be glad to. But of course, I put a little pastor humor in there and said something like this. I think you're taking the words of Jesus a little too literally. Lo, I am with you always. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you're grown about that. I know. King James says, lo, I'm with you always. What does it mean? Jesus is saying, behold, your attention. Mark this. Listen up. That's what it means. Behold, I am with you always. Now, friend, when that grips your heart, you know what happens? That changes your cowardice into courage. Because you know, big brother's with you. Your Lord is with you. Your master is with you. Friends, we are not alone. We are not alone in our going for the Lord, in our service for him. We never go it alone, ever. Never, ever do we go alone because the Lord Jesus, who could not lie, has made the promise I am with you, how long? Always, until the end of the age. We're not alone. Now let's let that sink in for a moment. And now here's what I want to do in this moment, if you will let me. Right now I want to deal with the devil. Because the devil's here this morning. Don't look around when I say that, all right? The, the devil is here. Why? Because he's trying to snatch away the seed of the word of God. I'm sharing with you the word of God and the enemy is trying to snatch it away from you. And how does he do that? How does the devil operate? Here's how he operates. He shares with you half a truth so you'll believe a whole lie. He gives you half a truth so that you'll believe a whole lie. Here's what 
it sounds like. Some of you got it in your mind right now. You know, he's right. Jesus is always present. Jesus is always with me. And he sees me. And he knows what a mess up I am. What a failure I am. He knows all the things I've done that shouldn't have done. He knows what I should have done I did not do. Yeah, Jesus is always with me. And he knows what I've done. You see what the enemy does? He gives half a truth so that you, though, will believe a whole lie. Because here is the truth. Here's the truth. And take this truth and take it into your heart. And friend, take it as the sword of the Spirit and stick it to the devil right now. Jesus has seen already every wicked thing you have ever done. The things that you don't even remember. Jesus knows the sins you haven't even committed yet. And he died on the cross for every one of them. They are paid in full. Jesus knows more about you than you know about yourself. He knows more about your sin than you could ever imagine. And he loves you. And he died for you. And he paid the price on the cross. Your debt has been paid. If you trust in him, he has saved you. And he has sent you. You see, the enemy's trying to tell you God only sends out practically per perfect Christians. And that's not you. Other people get sent out, but not me. Because Jesus knows everything and he knows what a sinner I am. Friend, you are glorifying. You are glorifying the lie of the enemy. You're taking the enemy's weapon and you're beating yourself with his weapon. The truth is this. You have been accepted by Jesus. Your faith in Christ has been accounted to you for righteousness. You are accepted in him. Not by something you have done, not by merit, but by the mercy and merit of the Lord Jesus Christ. His righteousness has been placed to your account. You stand in grace now. You don't stand in condemnation. You stand in grace. You've been accepted by Jesus Christ. That's the truth. And now believe that truth. If the Lord is convicting you of something in your heart and you need to confess, yes, confess for that restoration. But the idea that you're not qualified to serve the Lord because you are not practically perfect, my friend, that is a lie from the enemy or it was put in your brain as you were being raised, get rid of it. Stand in the truth. You are accepted. You are qualified. Jesus has sent you not because you are worthy, because he is worthy. That's the promise. The promise of absolute authority. All authority has been given to me. Now go. An absolute abiding presence. You're not going alone. I'm going with you. I'm going with you. Now, there's one other mountaintop promise I want to share with you. Jesus led his disciples to another mountaintop. This one was in Galilee. 
But a few weeks later, he led them to another mountaintop. And we read about this in Acts chapter 1. Would you turn there just for a moment? Acts chapter 1, you're in Matthew 28. If you would, just make a few right turns, okay? And you'll come to Mark, you'll come to Luke, you'll come through John. Then get to the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 1, the Lord takes his disciples to another mountaintop. And he gives them another amazing promise. And it's the promise of his all-sufficient power. He's made the promise of his all, having all authority. He's made the promise of always being with them, his presence. And now he makes the promise to them of his all-sufficient power. Now he led his disciples up this mountaintop. Just outside of Jerusalem, it's called the Mount of Olives. Here's what happens. Chapter 1 of Acts, verses 6 and following. You follow along in your Bible. He said to them, excuse me, that's verse 7, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, let's stop there. Why are they asking him this now? Why this question now? Think about it. They're crossing the Kidron Valley. Behind them is the Temple Mount, the Eastern Gate. They are going up the Mount of Olives. They're going up the road of the Mount of Olives that Jesus had come down just about six weeks or so earlier. Do you remember this? Jesus came down the same road, the same road that they're walking on. Jesus was riding on the colt of a donkey. Do you remember? And what happened? The children began to praise him. Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna he, to him who comes in the name of the Lord. The people take their cloaks off, throw them on the road. They go and take palm branches, put them on the on the street. Why? Because they, they understand this is the fulfillment of what the prophet Zechariah said. Behold, your king comes to you riding on the donkey, the colt of a donkey. This is the son of David showing himself as the Messiah. Jesus had come down that road. But Jesus knew what the disciples did not know. That's the reason he was weeping as he rode that donkey. He was sobbing. Why? Because he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that stone the prophets, you kill those who are sent to you. How often I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chickens beneath her wings, but you would not. And now, behold, your city will be left desolate to you. Jesus knew that his destination was not now, the crown, his destination was the cross. Now he's resurrected. <laughs> he is alive. And he's going with his disciples back up this mount. And they're thinking, hey, we're going to do do-over. <laughs> do-over, we're going to do this again. He's the king now for sure. And the kingdom's ready now for sure. And they said, are you going to do it now, Lord? Verse 7, he said to them, it's not for you to know the time or 
the seasons that the Father has fixed by His own, notice the word, authority, exousia. By His own authority, God has established the seasons. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into the heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, You men of Galilee, why are you standing here looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Now, Jesus led his disciples to that mountaintop. And he was lifted up. And they were alone. Now imagine being one of those 11 disciples. Put yourself in their sandals. They got a little small job to do. Go reach the world for Jesus. Go into all the world. And they look around. Eleven of them. This is not the dream team. This is more like the bad news bears. Go in the world. Go. I remember one time I, I, I wanted to get up to that top of the Mount of Olives. And we had a group in Israel. And you always, we always get to go to the Mount of Olives. And it's incredible. You go through the Garden of Gethsemane, get to have devotions and pray under those 2,000-year-old olive trees. The same trees that Jesus was under, some of them. It's amazing. So we had that picture of the Temple Mount behind us. You remember? You've seen those. Then we had some free time, and I decided, looking up that hill, I want to go up there. I want to go up there to to Cape Jesus. That's where he took off. (laughs) That's where he went back to heaven, and it's ground zero. That's where he's coming back someday. I want to get there. And so I, I walked up that hill, and there's a community up there. It's, it's really a place you're not supposed to go. But I went. Uh, Susan didn't know about it. Okay. I'm not sure she knew about it until right now. We talk about that later. Okay, honey. Um, but, but I got up as high as I could go looking at those to say, this has got to be close. And it was a beautiful sunny day. If you clouds and I'm looking up and I'm saying, this is where Jesus left and Here's where he's coming back someday. And it just came out of my mouth. Even so, come Lord Jesus. He's coming back. But he has something he wants done. He wants his disciples to share the message of him around the world. How in the world are they going to do it? How can they possibly do it? How can we do it? Well, friends, listen. We're in over our head. We're not able. 
but he is. His grace is sufficient because his grace not only supplies the commission to go, his grace supplies the power. The power. Why did we sing earlier the same power that raised Jesus from the dead? Lives in us. Lives in us. Here's how Jesus described it. He said that we would have the power by His Spirit. Look at verse 8. But you will receive power. Mark that word power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now the word power here, mark it in your Bible. If you like to make notes in your Bible, the word here for power is dunamis. Dunamis. And it, we get our word dynamite comes from this. But it means something very different. When you think of dynamite, what do you think about? Explosive power. The exploding power, that's not what this word means. Dunamis means inherent power. Inherent power. It is the power that is able to accomplish the purpose. That's the idea. So when he says, you will receive power, it doesn't mean it's going to be ostentatious. It's not doesn't mean people are going to say, well, look at that powerful individual. It doesn't mean well, somebody is going to say, well, sure, what a natural born leader. No, that's not what it means. It means hidden, inherent power, which is able to accomplish the purpose. Dunamis. And the disciples came down with this great commission given to them. They were promised authority. Jesus said, I'll be with you. But they needed the power that could only come from his presence. And so what did they do? They went back to an upper room and they prayed. They prayed. And after seven days, they're huddled in an upper room. Authorities looking for the leaders of them. While they were praying, what happened? The sound of a mighty rushing wind swept through that room. Fire entered that room and then it divided out into separate flames that rested upon each one of them. It was the coming of the Holy Spirit, the coming of the Comforter that Jesus had promised, the coming of His presence in the form of the Holy Spirit to dwell in all of them. And immediately they began to share a witness of Jesus. And it was into all kinds of languages because all kinds of, uh, of nations were there in Jerusalem for Pentecost. And it was an image. This is what God's going to do. You see, it's an image. God will send His power of His Spirit and His people will go to the nations of the earth and all the nations and tongues of the earth will glorify the name of Jesus. Wasn't it beautiful here just this morning to hear Jesus glorified in Slovakian?
Dear friend, we don't have to pray for the baptism of the Spirit. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for one, by one Spirit we've all been baptized into one body. When you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Bible says you are born again, you are regenerated, and the Holy Spirit gives you a new life, and He comes to live within you. This is the baptism of the Spirit. Christ sends His Spirit into your heart, and it is the baptism of the Spirit that Jesus accomplishes. But friend, though we have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the Bible does tell us and Jesus told us we need to be continually dependent on the Spirit, right? And how do you express dependence? You express dependence when you pray. You ever pray for the Holy Spirit? Jesus said this in Luke 11. Verse 11. Jesus said, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will he instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil, that is, we're sinners, you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give what? The Holy Spirit to those who what? Ask Him. I got a question for you. You know, we like to claim a verse. Here's the verse. You have not because you what? You ask not. That's wonderful truth. I want to ask you something. When's the last time you asked for the Holy Spirit? When's the last time you felt and you knew, I'm in over my head. I can't do this. I can't do this marriage. I can't do this parenting. I can't do this job. I can't finish this class. I cannot love this worker in my office. I cannot reach out to that person. I can't. Forgive what was done to me. When's the last time you asked for the power of the Holy Spirit? Because you know what God gladly gives to those who ask? He gladly gives you the powerful blessing of His Spirit. You know what happens? It's not that you get more of the Spirit. Here's what happens. The Spirit gets more of you. And this is a good time for that prayer. You know, it's not the end of the message, but we'll begin next week. It's time for us to focus on what we have heard, right? So let's bow our heads, and as we're about to now partake of communion, prepare, ask yourself, dear friend, ask yourself, ask yourself, Do I know Jesus? What incredible moment this would be for you to say, Jesus, I see you for who you are. You've opened my eyes and I do come to you. I give my life to you. I trust you. Be my Savior, my King, my Lord. Oh, what a great moment 
Never does he turn away from anyone who comes that way. And friend, what's overwhelming you today? Are you overwhelmed with the sense of your own sin or the sense of your own weakness? That's, That's a good thing to be knowing you're weak. But look to the strength of Jesus. Look to the power of the Holy Spirit. Take that issue to him. Take whatever he's saying to him and say, Lord, I can't do it. I'm not sufficient, but you are. You are. 